The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. ...to care for them in their suffering. And 15 years ago, I sat in the auditorium and I heard Mr. Cashin share the story that he met in that refugee camp named Rosario. Rosario, Mr. Cashin said, was a godly man and he was a very joyful man. That was Mr. Cashin's description. And so Bill said one day, he asked Rosario, how is it that you came to be in this place, this refugee camp? You're a godly man. You're a joyful man. You help us serve the people in their suffering and their scenarios and their situations. How is it that you came to be here? Mr. Cashin said Rosario shared a story that he would never forget. And it sounded something like this. There was a time when his 17-year-old son, Juan Carlos, was working out in the fields, and there was a group of rebels who came to uh, approach Juan Carlos and told him, uh, who was a Christian at the time, we don't need Jesus, we don't need the preaching of Jesus, you can stop preaching Jesus, and if you do so, um, everything will be okay. And then they requested Juan Carlos to tell them where a certain group of rebels were hiding. Mr. Cashin said Rosario... Uh, responded, Rosario's 17-year-old son Juan Carlos responded, two things I have to share with you. Number one, I don't know where a certain group of rebels that you are looking for are hiding. And number two, I refuse to rebel against the king who shed his blood for me. And Rosario said when Juan Carlos said that, the group of rebels took out a sharp knife and they began to cut on his right ear. They cut his right ear off. They cut on his left ear. They cut his left ear off. They cut off his right wrist. They shot him between the eyes, and they left him in the field. Mr. Cashin said, Rosario, I have no understanding of how your life has progressed to this point, the suffering that you have been through, and how you can still be a joyful man. Rosario said, Mr. Cashin, it wasn't even that day that we came here. That same group of rebels was determined to make an object lesson of my family. They came down from the mountains. They went to my oldest son's house, and they went into his house, took out my four-year-old grandson, threw him in a potato sack, tied the potato sack up, threw him back in the house, and they set the house on fire. Mr. Cashin, it was that day that I came to be here. You know, there are seasons in life when suffering is so intense and it's so great that I have these moments where I have almost a loss of hope, a loss of joy, a loss of meaning in life. I've never had a moment like Rosario has had. I've never had a moment uh, or a family member who's experienced what his 17-year-old son experienced, but I have had struggles in life, and you've had struggles in life. And you've walked through seasons where you've had doubt, you've had loss of hope, you've had loss of joy. And in those moments, sometimes we wonder if God would have anything to say. Peter is writing a narrative and a letter to a group of people who are in Asia Minor, who are uh, experiencing all kinds of struggles. Um, I dare say that there's not a struggle in First Peter that people are not experiencing that we don't experience today. 
They're experiencing overbearing bosses. They're experiencing living in the midst of a secular government. They're experiencing unbelieving spouses. And then in chapter 4, Peter goes on to say that, and he goes on to foreshadow that the Christians living in Asia Minor are about to undergo a persecution like they've never undergone before. In fact, we know the record of history that Paul died at the hands of the emperor Nero for his faith. Two years later, Peter also died at the hands of the emperor Nero for his faith. This is the precursor to Peter losing his life, and Peter knows what's about to happen. Nero is going to blame the Christians living in Rome for setting fire to Rome, and the aftermath of what would happen there would, that, would be that Christians would be persecuted for their faith, and they would be scattered all across the land. So Peter starts out his book here in 1 Peter, and he calls them aliens, scattered all throughout. He names four different areas, and the areas we know are all Asia Minor. And Peter's writing to them because he knows they are working through suffering and struggles. I believe this is a timely book for our church and our country. I believe this is a book that all of us can glean something from. There's not a theological controversy in 1 Peter. He's not writing because somebody believes something and it's entered the church. Peter is writing um, to, towards a common experience for all of us in this life especially as believers. We have this idea as believers that we are aliens living in a foreign land. We are citizens of earth, but our, our, our citizenship for real is in heaven. And Peter is writing to us, helping us understand how do we live in the midst of animosity? How, when, when life is upside down, health is not right, job has gone wrong, how, when the sufferings of life have overtaken us, how can we live with hope? How can we live with joy? How can we pursue not just the evil day, but how can we live with righteousness and, and deeds of, of, of hope and grace and joy towards other people? And so I'm excited about this series because I believe it's going to speak to all of us. And I believe all of us have a scenario that we've worked through where we have struggles and we may have experienced a loss of hope and a loss of joy. And Peter has something to say. So this morning we launch into this series and I really believe this is the setup for the rest of the book. So if you're listening by podcast this morning and you didn't make it here, um, and if you're here in the auditorium, you need to understand that um, this is really foundational to launch us to where we want to go. And so what Peter's about to do is he's about to make an argument and he's about to um, interweave two different themes together. And the first theme that Peter is about to expose us to is this theme of hope. And when we get to verse 6, then he's going to introduce a brand new theme that we may think is altogether different, but when we understand the context of the scripture, we understand that it's woven together. And the second theme is joy. And so if you have a Bible, um, turn it on, turn it to, and let's read it together. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, the title of the message this morning is The Strategy for Our Struggles and Joy. God has a strategy even in the midst of your struggle, and He has it for your joy. First Peter 1, starting in um, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth 
into a living hope. If you got something right with it, I, I, it's always good to underline important and key phrases when you're doing Bible study. This is a key phrase, living hope. If you got something right, just underline it. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. This is how, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, very important, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. Let's pause there. We're going to make it all the way through verse 7 this morning, but let's just pause just for a moment in these first three verses. Paul introduces this idea of living hope. It's vital to us as we are understanding how do we live in the midst of our struggles. But we, we first of all need to, to, to um, um, decompress this idea of hope and how we typically understand it. In our culture, hope has this connotation and this idea that we have a preferred future of something happening, but we're not really certain it's going to come true, right? Like, like, I hope the Dodgers win tomorrow, right? Like, like, I hope my team wins tomorrow. I hope she calls me tonight. I hope it's not going to rain this afternoon. Like, we have this idea of hope where we, we hope there is a preferred future. We believe there's a preferred future, but we're not certain that, of, that it's going to actually come true. We're not certain of the outcome. Well, Scripture and, and the writers in the New Testament speak of hope in an altogether different way. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says this, hope fully in the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, so we have this idea of hope where the New Testament writers um, have implored us and instructed us um, where we have an understanding that in the New Testament sense, hope is a full assurance or strong confidence that God is going to do good to us in the future. And it's vital this morning. But it's also vital for us to understand how that hope is birthed in our hearts. So Peter says the way hope is birthed in our hearts is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you're here in October, and in April of this year, when we celebrate Easter, we'll have multiple services, and there'll be a lot of people here, and we'll focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's an important day in Christendom. And so, But today, Peter brings us back to the resurrection, and he says it's the genesis of living hope. But the problem we have in 2016 is that the resurrection of Jesus was 2,000 years ago. We have a gap from the resurrection of Jesus until 2016 where we sit in this auditorium. So what is the gap that, that, that bridges the resurrection of Jesus to birthing new hope in our life? Well, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 23, that what bridges it is the preaching of the gospel. In other words, there's the resurrection of Jesus. The preaching of the gospel is interwoven into this. And through the preaching of Jesus who died, was buried, and rose on the third day, we have this idea of a living hope. Hope is not just something we, 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 we are not certain about in the future, but Scripture tells us when Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, that he was seen by more than 500 people. So when we have this idea of the resurrection of Jesus, it's not, it's, not a, um, it's not wishful thinking. It's grounded in truth. It's grounded in reality. And Peter says our living hope, hope that we're certain something is going to happen, is grounded in a fact in history confirmed by the preaching of the gospel that births something new in our hearts. 
in an auditorium like this where there's people in uh, this room, as many as there are, there's, I'm confident that not all of us ex experience that new birth in our life, but many of us have, and we understand when Jesus birthed something new, he was leading us towards something, and this is what he's leading us towards. Verse 4, this is what, what Peter says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, which is reserved for us in heaven. The content of our hope is a promised future that God is keeping for us. Now listen to this. Let's, let's go back to the context of 1 Peter. Peter is speaking to a group of people where life is uncertain. Life is insecure. The, the, the way that Peter is describing salvation, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it will never fade away. It's reserved for you and it's certain and it's confident that it's going to happen. Peter is speaking to a group of people who have experienced the opposite of everything he's saying. Life has been taken away. There's been, there's been loss. Things are, are fading away. And he's speaking certainty into an environment of uncertainty. Now, we come back to 2016 and I think oftentimes in our suffering, we're fearful because we don't know what's on the other side of our suffering, right? Does that make sense to you? Like, 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 like I'm fearful in this moment that I'm walking through now because I can't see what's on the other side of the canyon. Living hope tells us that even though we're standing on this canyon and what's in between we may not be able to see, living hope tells us that God is going to get us to the other side and we can trust him because he's already been there. He's already on the other side and he knows what we are going to walk through. That, that, that's a difficult scenario for us to digest in 2016 because we like microwave meals. We, we like instant communication and we're like, okay, I get that, but I'm struggling now. Like I'm struggling in this moment. And God is saying through Peter that, that, that you have hope, number one, because it is a, not just a preferred future, but is a, a certain future. And that's difficult in the context that we live in because we want everything instantly. So the content of Peter's hope is that there is a future moment for us. But then he goes on in verse 5, and this is what he says. He says in verse 5, it's reserved for us in heaven. He actually says you, and then he describes this, who are protected by the power of God. God through faith. Verse 4 tells us that, that there's an, an inheritance that, that God is keeping for us. There's, in other words, there's something on the other side of our suffering, and God is, is preserving it for us. So like, like your suffering in this moment is not the end because God has something better for us on the other side. And Scripture says God is keeping it for us. Nothing can take it away. Nothing. It will not perish. It will not fade. I know, I know first century Christian, you're watching with your very eyes. Your, your dignity is being taken away. Your integrity is being taken away. Your homes are being taken away. You're watching people's lives being taken away. But I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that what God has reserved for you on the other side will not be taken away. I promise you, I guarantee I'm going to keep it for you. 
But not only does, 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 does Peter point to a, a future moment of time and the future inheritance that God is keeping for us, but he says it's being reserved for you by the power, it's being protected by the power of God through faith. And verse 5 tells us God is not only keeping the inheritance for us, but he's keeping us for the inheritance. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. Because in this moment, there's all these questions like, where's hope? Where's joy? Where's peace? I don't know what's on the other side. And God's promise to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, is that I'm not only keeping that for you, but I'm keeping you for that. God has an unswerving commitment that you will not shipwreck your faith and lose your inheritance. He's got an unswerving commitment to it that, that it's not just the inheritance that he's got reserved for you, but it's you that he's in the process of preserving. He's got a strategy for your struggles. Now watch what Peter says next in verse 6. He's about to connect this idea of hope with, with what may seem like to be a different idea of joy. He's going to weave them together, and he connects a guaranteed future <laughs> with a present possibility. He's about to guarantee a, a, a guaranteed future. He's about to get a guaranteed future with a present possibility. Like, Pastor Matt, I get that. My hope is in heaven. I'm struggling now. One day there's going to be no tear in every eye. There's going to be no weeping. There's going to be no sadness. The streets are going to be made of gold. But, Pastor Matt, right now I'm really struggling. <laughs> Peter says, I've got hope for you because there's a guaranteed future, but let me connect it to a present possibility. In verse 6, here's what he says. In this you greatly rejoice. In this, what is in this? He's pointing back to verse 3, 4, and 5, and, and he looks back at what's been guaranteed, and he says it has implications for your present. Um, Peter, um, as a result of so great a salvation, he says, uh, rejoice is, is actually translated that, that we are extremely joyful. And he says, because of your great salvation, you are extremely joyful. And let me tell you, this is what the scripture says about joy. This is how the scripture narrates this idea. In the Old Testament, it commands us in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 18, that we should rejoice before the Lord our God in all of our undertakings. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us in Luke 6, 23, rejoice and leave for joy for your reward is great in heaven. And then he tells us in John chapter 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, he tells us that the fruit of the spirit is joy. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 24, that he is a worker with us for our joy. Thank you for reminding me this week that when you serve me, you receive joy from it. That's what Paul is saying. And then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, that he lives for the advancement and joy of our faith. And so on and so on and so on and so on. The writers of Scripture, their message is clear. Christianity is a life of tremendous and abiding joy. So, Pastor Matt, how do I get there? Well, joy is synonymous with hope in the Scriptures. Peter says there's a future for you, but joy is possible today. Why? Because joy is possible today because God has promised a great tomorrow. Okay, now look at this with me, okay? I promise I'm going somewhere. There's five, like, uh, like as I read chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, I see there's, there's, there's at least five ways that God has a strategy designed for our Joy, okay? Read with me. God has a strategy for our struggles in this life. Here it is. In this you greatly rejoice. 
even though now for a little while. Hold on just a second. Let me back up real quick. <laughs> Pastor Matt, does God will our sufferings? Like, does, 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 does God will for us to go through these moments in life where we seem to have no hope and joy? I mean, is that God's will for us? Does he will it? Does, does he, like, push it into action? The answer is, is, is sort of yes and no. This is what Peter says in chapter 3. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. God does not approve of sin. We understand that. God doesn't approve of sin. He doesn't command sin. But do you have this understanding that God, even in the midst of sin and sin being done to you and sin being applied to you, even in the midst of that, God has a plan to work all things together for his good. Do you understand that? And so, so like, 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 ultimately, when we look at the life of Jesus, when Jesus was murdered, it was sin done to him. There was no right for him to be put to death, but God willed it to happen. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Does God will for our sufferings? Yes and no. Like that thing you're walking through, you, you, you need to be certain that God's not unaware and more so he's not uninvolved. So let's look at God's strategy then to bring you greater joy even in your struggles. In this, you greatly rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while. If you've got something to write with, you can underline it in your Bible. In this, though now for a little while, the first part of God's strategy in our struggles is that struggles are brief. <laughs> struggles are brief. You're like, no, no, Pastor Matt, I, I've got a friend, a family member. We have a person in our church who's been wrestling with cancer for nine years now. You're like, Pastor Matt, that's not brief. And, and I want to be gentle when I say this, but in the context of of of, of compared to our, our lifetime on earth, um, compared to eternity and what the inheritance is that God has for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, our struggles really are only for a little while. Peter shares the same perspective that James does on our life. James says in the book of James chapter 4 that you, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Compared to the, the length and the greatness of the future that God has planned for us, all of the struggles in our life are temporary and they are brief. One writer says that when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. Sometimes he may have to reset the clock because we haven't received all we need. But, we, but if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. You're suffering this morning? You're suffering this morning, it's brief, it's temporary, even though it may have lasted for years. Part of God's strategy is not only that, that we struggle, but that we will struggle, and God says it will be brief. And then he goes on, you may have had to suffer grief, he says in verse 6. You may have had to suffer grief, he says in verse 6. Here's the second part of God's strategy. Our struggles aren't easy, <laughs> 
Our struggles aren't easy. Peter uses this word that, that's called heaviness. Um, yeah, trials produce what Peter calls, it's a, called heaviness. It's the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood. Um, it's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 um, at the sorrow of the saints um, at the time of death of loved ones. Um, I, I, I know... Um, Sometimes in our struggles, we like 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 I, somebody's watching, and I've just got to be strong, and I've got to pull myself up, and, and and sometimes we almost act as if act as if um, the struggle isn't as real as the struggle really is. Can I be the first one to raise my hand and say there are many moments in my life when I have tried to deny that the struggle is real? My wife would look at me and she says, "You need help." <laughs> And there have been many years in my life when, when I've acted as if it's not as difficult as it really, really is. This is personal, just not, it's personal to me this morning. We've got to accept the fact that there are difficult experiences in life, and we don't have to put on this brave front to appear more spiritual. This is what Paul said. He said he lived as sorrowful, which is the same word, the same word as grief. He lived as sorrowful, yet he was always joyful. In God's strategy for our struggles, there's a, a real place for authentic, grieving lives that admit this is a difficult moment. But see, we have a different perspective than our culture has on our struggles. Our culture has a perspective on our struggles that, that, that life is, has come apart at the seams in the moment when we are challenged. The Christian perspective of struggles is that, is that our roots are planted in the grace of God. And even though the branches may sway and they look like the tree is about to fall, the grace of God keeps us planted. And it's all a part of God's strategy in our struggles to bring us joy. Part of his strategy is that struggles aren't easy. And then Peter goes on to say, if only for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. And then he says, in all kinds of trials. By the way, if you're taking notes this morning, I, I would encourage you to go back and read over some of these notes this afternoon or listen to the podcast again. Because in these five things, I'm sure you can find yourself in several of these. Um, so when he says, and he and suffer all kinds of trials, the third part of God's strategy is that struggles come in many forms. Struggles come in many forms. It indicates that there are special times when God knows that we need to walk through trials. Sometimes trials discipline us. We walk away from the will of God. We're disobedient to God. Sometimes we have trials and sufferings as a form of discipline that God has for us. Other times trials prepare us for spiritual growth, moments of dependence on God when we have not been so, even to help um, sometimes our trials are even to help us to prevent us from, from sinning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. But we don't always know what the need is that God is meeting in our struggles. But part of his strategy is that they will come in many different forms. One pastor said, God paints with many colors, many dark, many bright. And in the end, the canvas of your life will be glorious if you trust your soul to a faithful creator. Peter says, for a little while you suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Verse 7, these have come so that you, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, here it is, even though refined by fire. The fourth part of God's strategy for our struggles is that struggles purify our faith. All of us have impurities in our faith. We love money. 
We love being known. We love popularity. We rely on things that God says we shouldn't rely on. We all have impurities in our faith, and, and they hinder the fullest experience that we can have of the goodness and the greatness of God. And so God designs these trials, these fires, so that the impurities can rise to the top. By the way, we know that when gold is refined, um, that the impurities rise to the top and they're taken away. In fact, um, it's, it's said that, that, um, that the, eastern, the eastern goldsmith uh, would refine fire such to the fire, I mean, refine gold in the furnace such that he would do it until his face was reflected in it. And so the Lord keeps us in the furnace of suffering until we reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to, I said this to one of our greeters this morning, he just mentioned Paul. Like, like, like there are days when I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. <laughs> Maybe you don't have those moments, but I do. And then I read Paul, like Paul, the greatest Christian missionary, the guy that, that, that we may look at and like, gosh, he's a hero in Scripture. Like he must have had something different than we had. This is, this is the refining strategy of God in the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That's the fire. <laughs> Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises from the dead. That's the gold. <laughs> That's the gold that God is refining. That's the strategy in Paul's life, not because God didn't love Paul, but because he saw Paul's faith um, as gold that was worthy of refining. You're walking through a strategy today. You're walking through a struggle today. And God wants you to know that part of my strategy in, in, in you experiencing the greatest joy is that this is a part of the process to purify your faith. And then the last part of the strategy that God has for us in our struggles, he says that it may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The last part of the strategy in our struggles is that struggles point us and others to Jesus. Um, I, I, I don't want to seem ultra-spiritual in this moment and try to propose to you that every time we walk through suffering, we bring glory to God because it's just not the case. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we faint. Sometimes we walk away for a brief moment. But ultimately, what Peter says here is that when, when God is refining us, when our faith is being purified... And we're responding the way that God intends for us to respond eventually. That eventually that struggle will point ourselves to Jesus and others to Jesus. Like often when I pray for people who are walking through a difficult time, my prayer is, Lord, let, let us be pointed to see you in this struggle. There's this theme of struggling in grace and glory that we see throughout the book of 1 Peter and Peter's promise through the mouth of God is that suffering saints have assurance that their suffering will one day be transformed into glory. We see Jesus face to face. 
And then we finally see the strategy of God in our struggles has been the extraordinary joy of sharing in the very glory and praise and honor of God himself. Mr. Cashin said, Rosario, I, I, I just, I cannot comprehend. I cannot comprehend how in the midst of what you've been going through, how joyful, joy-filled you can be. Rosario responded to Mr. Cashin, Mr. Cashin, because I understand this one thing. My son and my grandson can't come back to where I am, but one day I will go to where they are. And on that day, I will stand with my son on my right hand, my grandson on my left hand, and we will raise our hands before the Lamb, and we will sing, oh, how we love Jesus, oh, how we love Jesus, oh, how we love Jesus, because he first loved me. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to close out this morning. I'm confident in a city like we live in, there are continuous moments of suffering and struggle that we all walk through. There have been moments over the last two years since moving to Los Angeles that I thought, what have I done <laughs> to deserve this? Sickness, my family walked through 19 episodes of strep throat in about 15 months. I'm sure you have your similar stories as well. And you're wondering, God, where is the hope and where is the joy in my scenario? I fully recognize this morning that there is the potential to understand theologically where God stands and what his strategy is for us. But practically, our experience can be something altogether different. This morning, I want to point you to the hope of Jesus through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Not just a historical fact, but the preaching of the gospel, the affirmation of history and the testimony of Jesus. Not being in the grave affirms to us that Jesus, when he makes a promise, that he forgives us of our sins, that he has a preferred future that is certain and reserved, not only the future that he's going to protect, but us he's going to protect through it. When Jesus says so, because of the resurrection of Jesus, he is alive. The preaching of the gospel confirms it. We know that he is not dead. We can rest in the truth that he will do what he said he's going to do. This morning he's saying to you, He's saying to you, to the depths of your soul, in the struggle that you're now enduring, the struggle that you've just walked through, the struggle that you're heading into, he's saying to you, I've got a preferred future and I guarantee it. <laughs> Not only that, but I guarantee you through it. I'm committed. I'm unswerving and I'm gonna hold my promise. Maybe this morning you walked into this auditorium You've been in church for a while. You've 
maybe even heard the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, that God created you, he's responsible for you. There's a problem between you and God as you currently stand. It's called sin. If there's not a solution to your problem called sin, the result is death both in this life and the next. But God in his wonderful, glorious, awesome grace and love towards us died on the cross for our sin, that if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. That's the preaching of the gospel this morning that can birth a new living hope in your life. If you've never received that living hope, I'd like to invite you into it. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. I'm not gonna stand you on the stage, make you say anything you don't wanna say. We're simply going to ask you in this moment, have a moment of authenticity and genuineness before God to acknowledge who you are and what he's done for you and to ask him to save you. If that's your desire, I just want to encourage you in this moment to do business with God, to, to acknowledge before God in a very simple prayer that goes something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, if it's your desire to be saved this morning, I know that I've sinned against you Jesus this morning. I desire a new life because of what Jesus has done for me. Jesus, this morning I turn from my sin. I desire the rest of the days of my life to walk with you. Jesus, this morning, would you save me, change me, transform me, and give me a living hope. The promise of Scripture is that when we voice that to God from the authenticity of our heart, he promises us, He gives us the right to become a child of God. This morning, if that's your desire and you've prayed that prayer, I, I don't want to embarrass you, make you say anything you don't want to say, but I'd love for you to acknowledge it this morning. If you just prayed that prayer and said, Jesus, I need salvation, will you do me a favor? Nobody looking around to the right, to the left, to the front, to the back. Would you just do me a favor? Would you just hold your hand real high? Anybody in this room this morning? Anybody? Nobody around. Nobody's looking. Praise God. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise God. Praise God for you. Praise God for you. I want to close in prayer. And we're going to have a moment of communion, remembering the death of Jesus. Lord, thank you for the joy set before you. You endured the cross. I'm reminded this morning, God, that my struggle is not native to me, Jesus. It's not, it's not exclusive to me, Jesus. God, you endured suffering and shame. God, you know our trials and our struggles. God, thank you that you're such a good and loving Father, that you have a strategy for us to experience extraordinary abundant joy even in the process. Thank you for your word this morning. It's so good, so abundant, so true. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Look at me real quick, if you will. We're going to enter into a time of communion in our church. Communion is simply an opportunity for us to acknowledge the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you see the words of Jesus himself. He says, when we take the bread, what we are doing is we are acknowledging that this is Jesus' body, which was broken for us, and when we take it, we do it in remembrance of him. We take the juice, we take the cup, the new covenant that was written in Jesus' blood, we take it and we drink it in remembrance of Jesus. This morning, we have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
And so when we celebrate communion, we have the opportunity to acknowledge what Christ has done for us and birth that living hope. There's a warning in 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul says that we should guard ourselves from taking the communion and the elements before we have done some business with the Lord and acknowledged and confessed our sin before Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning, before you get up and you take the bread and the juice this morning, you may want to have a moment with God and say, God, I need to uncover my heart to you. Not that you don't know it, but I need to acknowledge it to you because I want purity in this moment when I worship you. If you're here this morning, you've never entered into a, a faith relationship with God. This is not a moment we want to exclude you, but we want to say that scripture is very clear. Communion is a moment for believers in Jesus. So if that's not you, you're welcome here. You're welcome to be a part of what's going on in their church. But in this moment, this is reserved exclusively for believers. At the top of the stairs, we have gluten-free. <laughs> and at the bottom of the stairs on the right and the left, we have the elements. We're going to sing just two songs. You have this moment of worship, remembering what Jesus has done for us.